Welcome to the Arabian Traveler Poetry. This is your host, Mohammed Bader. The Traveler is a mystical journey, a dream, and a desire to find peace and harmony in a world torn with war, greed, and lust for power. Today's topic is going to be on love. Love never fails. An interview with Kim Sorrell author of the book, Love Is. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It does not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no records of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always preserves. Love never fails. As many new weds, when I got married to my lovely wife, we had this saying, these verses printed and passed to our guests. I had forgotten about this and went to live on my life hurriedly and frantically. Although I vowed to live by these ideals, at least in my mind, and handed them like candy to my guests, it seemed like an empty promise when I look back at it now. It seemed like it was a mechanical ritual. I thought that was our devotion. Quickly forgotten and vanished after our honeymoon. As I reflect back, I have to admit that I most likely violated these principles on multiple occasions. Am I patient enough when I need to? Am I kind enough when I need to? How is it to always trust? To not be easily angered? Hard times such as death, illness, and major life crisis make us think of this. We quickly grasp what we had forgotten. We need something to anchor us. Our guest, Kim, is an inspiration. She was able to find that anchor in these verses. She revisited and lived it for more than a year. Kim Sorrell decided to take a year and live by these principles. In her book, Love Is, she talks about her experience practicing this kind of love. I was fortunate enough to have her agree to join my humble show, The Arabian Traveler Poetry, to tell us about how she transformed her life after a major life crisis. Kim Sorrell is an award-winning author, a director of Rays of Hope International, 
and an international speaker. It is my pleasure to introduce to you Kim Sorrell. Okay, thank you so much. Yeah, um, and I'm just recording voice, so I won't be doing video. So you can feel free to do whatever you like. Um, well, hi, how are you? And good morning. I know it's a Saturday morning. And how is your day so far? So far, my day is pretty good. It's been busy, busy morning, but that's good. I like a busy morning. How about okay. you? Oh, excellent. I am re really excited about um, just talking with you about Love Is. I titled this, um, as I was reading um, Love Is and uh, First Corinthian, and, and I have used that actually in my wedding, um, uh -huh. much like what you were referencing in your book, and it just kind of got me thinking like, gosh, I was... Uh, when we got married, we were passing those just like candy for our guests. And, and I'm just reflecting on, am I really living those <laughs> values? And so uh, I just wanted to um, welcome you and just have you uh, just uh, talk to the listeners about what prompted you to write the book Love Is. And, and uh, if you can just talk to us a little bit about that. And, um... Sure, absolutely. Yeah, I've been an entrepreneur since I was 18 years old. And I run a nonprofit organization. I do a few different things. And a few years ago, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And four months later, my husband was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and passed away six weeks after that. So it was a crazy time of life. And trying to redefine myself, uh, never expected to lose my husband so early. I was 47 years old with this whole new life and not knowing what to do. And it made me question some things. And one of those was love. Love seems to be this mystery. And I thought, well, then I'm gonna figure out what it is. So I did, I just decided to dedicate a full year, it took me longer than a year, but dedicate a full year to just go and search for love. I'm sorry about your loss. It, it sounds though that you were able to find um some meaning um, out of that. And, and uh, can you tell me about like, you know, what was the hardest and what was the, the most rewarding uh, part of that loss to you? Um, well, the hardest was the loss of the, the dream, the loss of the future, the loss of what I thought was gonna be, right? So I figured we would be in our nineties and die on the same day <laughs> or whatever. I had a great marriage. He was a wonderful man. And so never expected to have this loss and have it so quickly. And, and so that just in losing him was hard. But the most rewarding thing I would say is the, the hope that we have that the future is going to be brighter, that we don't stay in the horrible times, that eventually we can crawl out of that hole and mm -hmm. do something great with our lives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, uh, you've done a great job um, capturing that. And I'm a little bit also enamored with your nonprofit work. My mom started a, uh, an international nonprofit agency, and she also died of cancer. Um, but she fulfilled, you know, her dreams. Um, she was 84, 85 when she passed last year. Um, can you tell me a little bit about your nonprofit? And, and um, I'm just 
also curious about how you've practiced these principles as you were running that nonprofit. And, and how is it like, I've heard you talk about being the only woman among a lot of men uh, in your travels to Haiti and Dominican, Dominican Republic. And so I want to hear a little bit more about your agency and, and what led you to do that type of work too. Sure. So Rays of Hope International is the name of the organization and we're a partnering organization. So we work with people in their own country. They have a passion, a vision, a mission to do something to help people in their own country. So they understand the real need, they understand the language, they understand the culture, but they just need someone to walk alongside. So sometimes it's with initial funding or it can be with a business plan to make sure that the health clinic is gonna do okay once it's up and running or the school or whatever it is that they're hoping to do to help people. And sometimes they need supplies. It just kind of depends on what they need. We work toward uh, building in something for self-sustainability so that they can just do what they're called to do and not always be having to chase dollars. And so that's, that's what the organization is. And I got involved in mid nineties uh, because I met this man and then there was a hurricane in Dominican Republic. And so that Christmas, my husband and I and four little kids went to Dominican Republic to serve instead of having Christmas as usual. And it's still the best Christmas of their lives. And so I got involved with that. I loved the mission of the organization. I love the partnering aspect. You know, as Americans, it's so easy sometimes to go in anywhere and think that somehow we know the answer, but it's not true. We, we don't know the answer. We don't know the culture. We, we haven't lived it. We haven't lived in other people's shoes, you know? So partnering, just walking alongside and, and uh, it really has been an effective way to do things. And we do have some things of our own, school, water projects, um, medical clinic and whatever, but mostly we work with other organizations. And uh, yeah. It's wonderful, Neil. That's a very admirable what you do. I appreciate that. Yeah, yes. And being a woman, it's interesting because I just have always been a leader. And so I don't think about my gender until somebody brings it up. And in different countries that are very male dominated um, and male run and male obsessed, you know, whatever, uh, to be the only woman around, be the only woman on the docks in the port getting a container out, you know, anything, it, it just, then my gender comes to light. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the reason I asked this is I heard in one podcast where you said you had to sleep outside because there was a group of men and um, it, it was, um, I guess, and uh, maybe we can talk a little bit about it is like, what kind of love were you practicing there? I know you've, uh, I think you talked about it about maybe love keeps of no wrongdoing or something right. like that. Yeah. Right. Love doesn't, yeah. would you like me to tell this story? Yeah. Yeah. That would yeah. be great. Okay. I loved so, it. Yeah. Yeah. So on this journey, this 14 month that ended up being journey, I used this old poem that you hear at a lot of weddings. Love is patient. Love is kind. Does not envy. Does not boast, etc. And I took one word a month to figure out what it is. What is love that is patient? What is love that is kind? 
Well, one of the ones that I was dreading, the one I was dreading the most is love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Because what does that even mean? I mean, we may forgive people for the hurts we feel they've done to us, but we don't forget the things that have happened to us. Yeah. Love doesn't keep record of wrongs. So I got a phone call from a gentleman in the U.S. who wanted to see a water project I was doing in Haiti. And uh, to see if they wanted to be involved. And so he asked if I would meet him down there. So there were eight men from the US and then I brought two Haitian friends, both happened to be men to translate and they'd been working on the water project. And we went out to the countryside and where we were staying, it was a very small building with two rooms and there were four beds in each room. So eight American men, two Haitian men and me. And so the head American man pulled me over, Kim, Kim, can I talk to you? Like, sure. And he said, did you see the rooms? And I'm thinking, there is nothing else to see. (laughs) It's a tiny place. Yes, of course they saw the rooms, but there was room in the rooms. We brought a couple cots. We brought an air mattress. I thought they'll still fit in the room. And then I I thought, oh, he's asking me because he's going to think I want my own room. So I'll say, well, it's okay. I'll sleep outside. And then he'll say, no, no. If anybody should sleep inside, it should be you. And then I'll say, well, I don't care if there's other people in the room. And he'll say, oh, good, good. Because there's only so much space. So I said, well, it's okay. I'll sleep outside. And he said, oh, good, good. Because we have men on this trip that would be very uncomfortable with a woman in their room. What they think will happen in a room full of people when you're sleeping in hot Haiti, I have no idea, but I said I would sleep outside, so I had to figure it out. And there was a piece of plywood, and it was held up by these two wooden structures of some sort, and I thought, well, if I sleep under there, at least if it rains, I'll be okay. But then there are snakes. And there are tarantulas, and I don't even know what all is creeping around in Haiti scorpions. And I was afraid, my fear was that something would dismember me, attack me, something would happen in the middle of the night. And so I was just very afraid. So the first night I went to bed, and the air mattress was blown up, but within an hour I was sleeping on gravel. All the air was gone from the air mattress, it was a leak. And it was really loud. Horns were honking and dogs were barking. And finally, maybe 1 a.m. that settled down. And then about two o'clock in the morning, the voodoo drum started in the distance. So that kept me awake for a couple hours. And then finally, I was able to doze off and go to sleep. Well, the first night came and went without incident. Everything was good. I'm like, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. So the second night, same thing. The air mattress was empty within an hour. And there were dogs and horns and then the voodoo drums and finally I'm sleeping. But I woke up because there was something on my leg. And I was scared to death. I thought, oh my word, what if I need anti-venom? Does Haiti even have it? You know, is something poisonous gonna get me? Am I gonna lose a limb? What am I gonna do? I didn't know what was gonna happen. But I slowly lifted my head and I slowly opened my eyes and it was a chicken. There was a chicken on my leg and I didn't know whether to be mad because it woke me up from the little bit of sleep I could get or happy that it wasn't something much worse. Third night, went to bed, same thing, horns, dogs, voodoo drums, but nothing happened. Then came the fourth night. So again, sleeping on the gravel, the horns, the dogs, the voodoo drums, finally asleep. And again, 
I woke up because it was something on my leg. And again, I was scared to death. I had no idea. And I tried so hard not to move so that it wouldn't bite me and think my leg's a log or something. I don't know. But I slowly lifted my head and I slowly opened my eyes. And it was that dang chicken. It was the chicken. <laughs> and again, again, I didn't know whether to be happy or be mad. And I shoot it away. Uh -huh. So the good news is that night we had chicken for dinner. So my fifth night came and went just fine. There was no chicken to land on me. But at first I was angry at these guys. I'm thinking, wow, I hope my sons wouldn't treat a woman like that. Like I'm still a human being, you know, it was like I was subhuman and I'm all about equality and whatever, but, um, you have eight men and not one of them say, Hey Kim, maybe you could get a bed, <laughs> you know, or whatever. I don't know. But so at first I was bitter. You know, I was angry and realizing, though, that bitterness only hurts me. If I'm bitter towards somebody, it only hurts you to be bitter. A lot of times the person you're bitter toward has no idea that you're bitter toward them. And it can eat you alive, right? It can just damage you. And so uh, I didn't want to be bitter, but I was. And then it hit me. Love doesn't keep record of wrongs. And then I was like, ah, Eureka. I figured out the meaning. So I'll never forget that time. It was very intense and I'll never forget that time. But now to me, it's just this funny thing that happened and I could literally sleep anywhere in the world and be perfectly fine. So the narrative changed, the tone of the story changed. So instead of, oh my gosh, these eight American men who did me wrong, it's, it was a funny thing that happened and I lived through it. You know, so, so whatever. And, and the reality is we can do that with any story in our life. We get to determine how we react to anything, you yeah, know, yeah, events yeah. in our reaction, right? And then we get an outcome, whatever the outcome is. And so, so love doesn't keep record of wrongs. Love changes the narrative. It just changes the tone of the story. Thank you. I appreciate uh, you sharing that. Um, one thing that struck me as I was reading your book too, I, I've, I've read um, con confessions of different people like St. Augustine's and others historically. And when I first uh, read that you took these 14 months or over a year, I was thinking, uh, okay, maybe she's going to go and isolate and be kind of monastic and and kind of practice these, but as, as I'm reading it, you're like still practicing everyday life, you're working. How was that like to just, you know, um, be practicing this, but also be in the midst of work? You're, you're, you're going to Haiti, you're going to, you're, you're doing your regular day-to-day -day job. It's not like that stopped and you're just focusing on that. Um, <laughs> right. And so um, maybe you can just talk a little bit about that, how that yeah. felt well, like for you. Right. So, you know, the first, the very first word is patient. Love is patient. And so when I started day one, January one of that year, I just kept it in my mind all the time. Love is patient. Love is patient. Love is patient. Everywhere I went and everywhere I looked and everyone I talked to, love is patient. Love is patient. I just kept it in my head the entire month. And so then when I went to the second month, after figuring out love is patient and working on love is kind, I practiced love is patient, 
while working on kind and then practice those two while working on the next and practice those three. And so there were times that I was able to have some solitude and, and really process things and, and figure it out, you know, figure it out for truth, what it was and know that I was doing it right. And uh, so I did have those moments, but I was working. I was, it was, I was doing everything, but with that, just always on the forefront of my mind. What was, what was hard about that work or what was the hardest um, love to practice? The hardest love to practice, although actually love is patient because it was so far away from what I'm used to. So I started chapter with what I think it is and then end each chapter with the story that brings me to the truth and then how you can apply it to your life. And so love is patient is, we know what patience is, but love is patient is different than that. Love is patient is recognizing that this is the most important moment of your life. What's yeah. in the past is in the past and what's in the future is yet to come. That you love the person you're with so much that you give them your full undivided attention. And then you're really here. Like it changes, it changed my life dramatically because I thought I was this great multitasker. I could think about a meeting that I had later the day. I could think about also picking who I had to pick up from soccer practice, what I needed to stop and get at the store. And I was making assumptions about what people were saying. There's no way I, any, I don't know that anybody can be fully engaged fully engaged with all these other things on their mind. And so I had to practice and practice and practice because it was so out of my nature. I think we're probably born loving the right way, born knowing that, but then people tell us things or our life takes over, whatever it is, we get away from it. But the most important thing are people and relationships. And so to be fully in tune took me a lot of practice. Um, I also heard you talk about your grandma and have um, a lot of family and grandkids. Are you uh, patient enough with everybody? And what do they tell you? What do you hear from your family? Are they, are they saying, yeah, you see, you've practiced, you put all this time and you see you are, or are they saying, or did they give you a hard time? What's, what's, what's it like? Uh, that's an interesting question. I don't know. It to, I don't talk to my kids a lot about it. I don't know that they've read the book. <laughs> I think, you know, I think change happens over time. Mm -hmm. And so it's not like one day I was one way and the very next day I was, oh, I've got to live this love, you know, all 14 of them, whatever, you know, it took some time to figure it out. And so the changes I believe in myself were a little more gradual. So they don't, uh, they're, my grandkids actually are more excited that they've got a grandma who wrote a book. <laughs> okay. Well, how do you feel? Um, I'm sure um, you, you gained something out of this experience. How, how do you feel yourself about that? And I, and I, I'm looking at you and I see the radiation um, that you're, face radiates with with love and uh, confidence and affection so uh, but how does that um how do you feel about it truly like if you're to sit with yourself and nobody there what, what would you say to yourself i would say i'm not perfect 
I'm, I'm certainly not perfect, but there are absolutely some things that used to be a part of my life that are not a part of my life anymore. Yeah. You know, one thing that I learned is love is not an emotion that comes and goes. You know, we, we talk about falling in love, falling out of love. We talk about different kinds of love, whatever, but love is universal and love is who you can be. Love is walking, talking, living, breathing, giving. Love is all encompassing and mm -hmm. it sat saturates you. So if you live love, there are some things that just kind of don't happen, you that know, happens, like, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, like to sit, sit at the mall with friends and, and, you know, sometimes maybe people have had this experience where some friend will say, oh my gosh, look at her hair, <laughs> you know, or oh my word, look at her. And whenever that happens now, I immediately think, hey, I wonder where she's from. I wonder yeah. what she's gone through in life. You know, I wonder what, you know, what's, what's happened in her life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, you've um, encountered um, several um, uh, occasions of grief, and I just wanted to talk. I know I heard you talk uh, about your mom that you've uh, lost to uh, the fact that she died by suicide, and then you've got your husband who died to um, uh, pancreatic cancer. I'm just um, want to hear about how you process that grief. How did how did um, the death of your mother impact you and impact your life? And um, how did you um, what what soothed you? What what did you um, do to deal with that grief and loss? Well, losing my husband was entirely different than losing my mom. Uh, my mom that came out of left field. I mean, we had no idea. It's not like she had attempted it before. It's not like she gave any indication. Uh, I think she just had a bad moment. Really, mm -hmm. I think a lot of times people just have bad moments. And if you can hang on and get through that moment, then something brighter, something better will happen for you. And then you can leave the notion of, of suicide behind. So it was shocking, very shocking when I got a phone call from my brother saying that my mom had died and how she died. And I just got in my car and was over there as fast as I possibly could be. I didn't live that far away. And it was in 1990, and certainly uh, mental health is more in the forefront now than it was, but it needs to be more so. I mean, we certainly need more awareness of mental health, more help, more money for uh, research and whatever. But um, one of the very first questions was, um, what do we tell people? What do we say? Because it, it's different when it's an accident or an illness. But this was something that what we were afraid would happen happened. We were afraid that what would happen is, is everybody would look at my family differently. My dad, I have two brothers, and, and that happened. Uh, we lost my mom's side of the family. My brothers don't talk to my mom's side of the family at all. And these are cousins and whatever we grew up with. And we were in our 20s. And so we, it's not like we were young children, but they just, not all of them, but most of them just kind of cut us off uh, because they blamed us. And I think with death, 
quite often somebody wants to blame somebody, blame something, because they have, you have all these emotions and you just want to throw your emotions somewhere. And sometimes it's with blame. And so we were the target. And so it was very sad to lose people that I was close to, that I was really close to. And, it, and I've reconnected with some of them, but my brothers have not. And my brothers, especially one, it, it, he's kind of bitter. Like he needs mm -hmm. to read my book. Yeah. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. But that was a that was that was very, very hard to deal with. That was just awful. Um it's just the worst way to leave people. For my mom, it was in the garage and she basically fell asleep. She left a note. I mean, there's there's no uh question about was it an accident, she just fell asleep in her car or anything she intended on doing this. And, uh, but there was a moment that I was by my dad's side and my dad was just, I've never seen grief like my dad. My dad couldn't even stand. He'd stand up to go walk and he'd just fall on the ground weeping. Like it was, oh my gosh, it was so painful to watch. And so, uh, but I was, with my dad, I was, he was sitting in a chair and I was like on the ground by him. And one of my brothers came in and said, where are the keys? And my dad's like, I don't know. Nobody knew where are the keys? And so my brother said, well, was the car running when you got here? Was it, was it still running? And no, it wasn't running. And then my brother went out and the keys were in her hand. So we took solace in that, thinking she didn't, she wasn't going to go through with it after all. She must have changed her mind. But breathing that in kind of paralyzes you, like you, you fall asleep. And I'm sure she fell asleep. She'd had a few drinks ahead of time, mm -hmm. so the alcohol kind of yeah. added to the whole thing. And she fell asleep. But I, I think she just had a bad moment. But with my husband, the thing that brought the most peace to me was service. When I, when I was finally able to go back to work after getting through my cancer stuff, it's, I was gonna be part-time bookkeeper at Rays of Hope. We had somebody that was running it and I ran into him and he needed a part-time bookkeeper. I'm like, okay, January 1st, you know, clean books. And then 12 days later, there was an earthquake in Haiti that killed 200,000 people. And my job went to 24 seven. And then for several years after that, I was in Haiti, at least part of every month, I was in Haiti a lot. And there was a lot of work to do, a lot that could be done. And it was the more hands, the better if you're doing it the right way. And I think just getting outside of myself and serving, I think serving does so much for people that you don't realize and you can never outserve. It's the craziest thing. You can give, 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 give. And you, you always, I always, for sure, uh -huh. yeah. get way back more, get back so much more than I can ever give. And so uh, service, it's amazing what it does for you, for your soul, for your heart, for your spirit. Well, you know, thank you so much for what you do. Uh, we were able to spend almost a half an hour and we're um, almost at the end of um, 
our show, I wanted what kind of um, how people get a hold of you. I, I did put a link in the description to your website, but I just wanted to know what kind of advice do you give to people uh, as we sign off and how can people get a hold of you and your book? Well, I love to hear from people. I love people. I just so please reach out. I'm on social media. I'm literally the only Kim Sorrell spelled my way in the entire world because there are way too many letters. There are two R's, two E's, two L's, S-O-R-R-E-L-L-E. So my website, kimsorrell.com, but you can also get there. Love Is is the name of the book, Love Is, and it's uh, loveis.info. We'll take you to the website, but the book's available on Amazon. It's available brick and mortar stores. It's available on online booksellers. Love is pretty easy title to remember. It's got a dark blue cover, big white letters. And I feel like I've done people's homework for them. Like the things that I found out are things that I never have heard before in my life from, from anybody. And if you live love this way, the what I discovered about love, it is the most freeing thing you can possibly do. And it's the best life. It is the best life to, to really live love. But we've been distracted. We've been misinformed. Everything that we think is love is not necessarily love. And things done in the name of love are not necessarily love. So to get back to what is love really, you don't have to go on a journey. I already went. You don't have to sleep outside, get chased by a motorcycle gang, been there, done that. So I encourage you to get my book and, and give it away uh, because a lot of people are doing that and uh, get emails all the time, life's changing and, and uh, couples, uh, marriages staying together, families reuniting, all kinds of wonderful things. And so, but just as a personal journey, even to read the book, I, I just think I'm just passionate about it because I know that it will change your life and I know it would change the world. Well, thank you so much, Kim. Um, this has been really wonderful connecting with you. Uh, you definitely have a great message of hope uh, for all of us. And uh, uh, I look forward to connecting with you in the future again on different episodes. And uh, well, enjoy your Saturdays today and Hope you do go and do something fun with your family. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I, I love your work, by the way. Everyone Thank should you. buy The Traveler. Your book is <laughs> phenomenal. You. Your poetry is amazing. It's probably the best book on poetry I've ever read in my life. Thank you so much. I appreciate that, Kim. Bye-bye. Take care. You have been listening to the Arabian Traveler Poetry. We concluded an interview with Kim Sorrell, author of Love Is. As I interviewed Kim, I can see how love radiates from her. She evidently has put into practice all what she learned. Very loving, caring, and compassionate human being who has great hopes and desires for humanity. I so much appreciated her focus on service and serving people. 
until we meet again, this is Muhammad Bader. And remember, for every high, there is a low. For every laughter, there is a tear. And it is perfectly normal. And it's perfectly okay. Goodbye.